You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 27th of February 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today, the UK publishes its strategy for trade talks with the EU. My guests Lance Price and Somnath Batabayal will discuss that and the day's other news, including sectarian violence in India amid some of the worst protests in recent years, plus US President Donald Trump sues the New York Times for defamation. No, but seriously. Also ahead... Residents in and around Hollywood have for years been complaining of congested streets, blocked driveways and nosy tourists taking too many holiday snaps. Los Angeles cracks down on Hollywood's sightseeing bus tours. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined by Lance Price, former Director of Communications for former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair, and Somnath Batabayal, lecturer in Media, in Development and International Journalism at SOAS. We will start with Brexit and the customary pause for listeners of a sensitive disposition to scream into a pillow. The UK's government has published this morning its strategy for trade talks with the EU. These will hopefully reveal a more sophisticated approach than what we have seen and heard from the UK's government so far, which has been more evocative of a British tourist abroad, assuming that if he yells at the waiter in English loudly enough, his desires will be obediently sated. Um, Lance, you have had a look at this. Initial thoughts on the UK's position. Is everything going to be just dandy? Well... Boris Johnson has clearly uh, convinced himself that everything is going to be absolutely fine. And and Michael Gove, uh, who's the minister responsible, has been telling MPs in the House of Commons that this morning. But uh, looking at it from the outside, it's very hard to see where that confidence comes from. It's a very hardline position that the UK has announced uh, this morning. Um, And uh, I think it will be perceived uh, in Brussels and by the negotiators for the uh, EU27 um, as... uh, showing a lack of good faith given what was contained in the political declaration that was that was agreed um, uh, at the end of last year and paved the way for Boris Johnson's um, stonking general election victory, which has given him the authority and obviously the confidence to take a very hard line position, which is that uh, he doesn't see the need for any kind of regulatory uh, alignment of the sort that the uh, European Union are saying is essential uh, to a deal. Uh, So the two sides are very far apart. It it, uh, raises the possibility again, of course, of there not being a deal at all. Um, And the idea that no deal was off the table, which uh, led to the chain of events that produced the majority that Boris Johnson has got, um, was was clearly uh, very wide of the mark. Uh, Somnath, there was also some talk, certainly shortly after the election, that that majority may give, paradoxically, Boris Johnson the confidence to pursue a softer Brexit. This idea being that he was no longer enthralled, he was not enthralled in the way that Theresa May was uh, to the swivel-eyed headbangers of the European Research Group and their ilk. Do you think there is anything to that, or was, was, was that Remainers basically clinging to the last fraying shreds of optimism they could gather around them? I think you've answered your question. (laughs) (laughs) Guardian columnists hoping for a miracle. Uh, There was, of course, this conversation that we do not know the real Boris Johnson. And I think we still do not know the real Boris Johnson and what he's um, setting out to do. Lance and I were having this conversation just before that 
there might be, and again, there's a huge might, a, an element of posturing, you know, and mm. taking a hard stance as negotiators do before uh, an agreement can be reached. And Boris Johnson hopefully has enough uh, understanding to realize that if there is, uh, if an agreement is not reached with the EU, the economic considerations will matter and will, will reflect very badly on his government and therefore his election chances in the next election go down. Again, this might be us hoping that you know, Cummings has less effect on Boris Johnson than we presume. But uh, <clears throat> the softer conversation around Brexit, I, I think, has disappeared. Uh, where it will lead us from this position, I mean, he seems to be clearly saying that, I mean, the government seems to be clearly saying that they want a Canada-style agreement. The EU's position is UK is not Canada and we cannot give you that because the EU mm. is far closely aligned with the UK. So um, it seems to be at this point a kind of stalemate. And as the government has again indicated uh, recently that they will walk away in June if there doesn't seem to be enough progress and focus its government's effort on uh, no-deal Brexit. Lance, I did want to ask about a possible inside Westminster straw in the wind in the last 24 hours or so, which, referring again to the, the swivel-eyed headbangers of the European Research Group, Steve Baker MP, the ERG's long-time chair, has resigned as chair of the ERG, sort of basically claiming job done, mission accomplished. Uh, he has handed that position over to Marc Francois, which will doubtless add considerably to the gaiety of nations in coming weeks. Uh, but he also deleted, intriguingly, a bunch of previous tweets about how easy Brexit would be, the whole sort of sunlit uplands narrative. Are we already seeing people uh, beginning to indulge in an amount of preemptive blame dodging? I think undoubtedly we are, because that sort of optimism that you've been describing was always pie in the sky. And I have to suspect, have to believe, because they're not entirely stupid people, that they knew it was pie in the sky when they said it. Um, and in terms of the leaders of the government that we now have, I mean, some of the things that Michael Gove was saying um, and Boris Johnson himself and others uh, during the referendum campaign about how easy all this was going to be, all of that's been quietly forgotten. They're reminded of it from time to time and they sort of humph and grumph and, 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 and change the conversation. Uh, um, well, some of them do. David Davis, the former Secretary of State for Exit in the EU, as recently as yesterday was wheeling out the they need us more than we need them. Yeah, it's patently not true. I mean, we, <laughs> we need uh, an agreement far more urgently than the European Union do. And of course, on the, on the on the global scale, you know, we need a deal with the Americans far more than the Americans need a deal with us, as we do with India, as we do with China, as we do with so many other nations. We are in a very, very weak negotiating position. And I think one of the reasons for all this bluster is to make it sound as if we're in a much stronger position than we really are. Lads Price and Somnath Batabayal will be back with more from you both in just a moment. But first, here is Monocle's Carlotta Ribello with some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. More than 60 people have been hurt in clashes between police and protesters on the Greek island of Lesbos and Chios. Tensions have been building there in recent weeks over plans to construct new migrant camps. The Greek government has called for calm. Tunisia's parliament has approved a new coalition government following months of political wrangling. However, the North African nation faces an uphill battle in order to reverse years of sluggish economic growth, persistent unemployment and deteriorating public services. And Michael Hertz, the man who designed the map of the New York City subway system, has died. He was 87. 
His firm was hired by city transport officials to redesign the old map in the 1970s, and at that time, subway use was at its lowest level in decades. Those are the headlines. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Carlotta. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Lance Price and Somnath Batabayal. Let's look now at India, which in recent days has been gripped by sectarian violence of the kind which will have surprised few who have paid much attention to the career of India's Prime Minister, Narendra Modi. More than 30 people are known to have been killed in New Delhi since Sunday after fighting began between protesters demonstrating for and against a new citizenship law hard to mistake as anything but a sort of bureaucratic pogrom against Muslims. In a discouraging development yesterday, a New Delhi High Court judge who criticised India's government and New Delhi's police was reassigned elsewhere. Um, Somnath, first of all, if you would remind us of what this new citizenship law entails. Um, It's a wide-ranging law and has three different parts to it, but very, very briefly, that the main thrust is focusing on migrants, on who is allowed into the country, on um, on a religious basis, which was never part of our constitution. So if Sikhs, Christians, Buddhists, Jains from any persecuted country are allowed in and you're allowed to stay, but if you are Muslim, you're not. <clears throat> this is the basic uh, mm-hmm. understanding. Uh, the citizenship bill has, again, um, India has had so many different laws on who belongs, and Aadhaar was one, PAN cards were, identity and your belonging has been always a big series of conversation. And this is not, hasn't started with the Modi government. The Modi government has just brought this into focus in a big way in the last election. The fear is, and as the Home Minister has clearly said, is we want... This is Amit Shah. Amit Shah, indeed. And Amit Shah's career is a is a checkered career of violence, uh, has clearly said that we want the Citizenship Amendment Bill to be implemented all over the country without exception. Now, in places like the northeast of India, in places like Kashmir, these are difficult because there are border areas. Mm-hmm. They have a long history of migration with Bangladesh, with Pakistan, and goes on to major complexities. <clears throat> Given the government's proposition, uh, suddenly in different parts of the country, which the government I did not think expect, protests have broken out and sustained protests over several months. But can, can, can Modi and the Amit Shah and the rest of the government really have been surprised? I mean, the, yeah. the protests and the sectarian violence strike me, at least, uh, as such an inevitable consequence uh, of the citizenship law that you might almost suspect that it's kind of what they wanted. No. Uh, the, the reason that this might not be true is that they got away very easily on the Kashmir uh, situation where they decided to remove the special uh, constitutional provisions. So it's more, we got away with we that, got, we can then, get away yeah, with this. And this was, again, like Boris, they came in with a huge mandate, pushed through the Kashmir situation. No one thought that will get get through so easily in Parliament. It did. So therefore, the next one came and suddenly the protests erupted, especially in universities across the country, not only in universities, which has a larger Muslim population, but even in others like Jawaharlal Nehru University. Now, the, the sudden, that several different levels to this. One of the main things which have come across, and this is, um, I've been a witness to this, is how badly the bureaucracy has reacted to the police, the absolute inefficacy of the police to protect uh, protesters, uh, 
ordinary students in campuses in, J in Jawaharlal Nehru University, in the Aligarh Muslim University, at the Jamia University. So this has been a few weeks. Now, in the last couple of weeks, as, Modi, as uh, Trump's visit was looming, the conversation was up the level to where in Delhi, politicians, BJP politicians on record, in camera, saying things like, let's shoot the traitors, um, in, inciting violence. There's a gentleman called Kapil Mushra mm -hmm. who is being in, indicted in all this by the liberal media. But this is beyond one politician. You know, this is a general kind of mass hysteria being promoted by the ruling party. And once the BJP lost the election in Delhi, they seem to have had a freehold to just create problems. Uh, Lance, as a general rule, because obviously there's differing degrees of it all over the world, but once any politician lets the angry nationalist toothpaste out of the tube, how difficult is it to put it back in? It's extremely difficult to do it. And, and Modi, in this sense, is a very, very interesting case. I wrote a book about his first uh, election, mm. and I spent several hours one-on-one -on -one with him trying to talk about these issues, because the allegations about him uh, either inciting intercommunal violence, or when he was first minister of Gujarat, uh, standing back and allowing the security forces and the police to uh, behave in ways that were considered to be Unacceptable, and they. I mean, he was widely held responsible for that. He was refused entry to the United States for quite yeah, a long time. Yeah, until he was elected prime minister, he wasn't allowed to enter the the United States, and obviously that only changed then. And and uh, he wasn't really he was he was persona non grata in the UK um, as well. Um, so he has this cloud hanging over him, uh, and the suspicion that he is willing to, if not himself, incite violence, to allow those within his party to incite violence and not to reprimand them, not to rein them in, uh, and to allow the um, security forces and the police uh, free reign and in perhaps even a nod and a wink. But it's you can never prove it. And of course, there were detailed investigations uh, into what happened in Godra, in, in, in Gujarat back in, in 2002, um, which kind of gave him a clean bill of health. And he'll always claim that it did. But the suspicion will hang over him. Whether that matters to his constituency, recent elections, the last election and the one before that suggests not. Just a, a final quick thought on this one, Somnath, because it's a thing I really don't understand with Modi. Obviously, he has leveraged uh, a certain amount of bigotry, rage towards Muslims to his own electoral advantage. But what's his end game? Because this is not a small population in India. This is 200 million people. He can't possibly want to rerun 1948 or even 2002. So where, where does he see this going? It's a, it's a big question, an interesting question. I think it's very closely related with ideology and the right-wing RSS ideology he mm -hmm. has been groomed in. I think there's a larger pattern of changing history, rewriting history, rewriting uh, you know, um, our constitution. He's been challenging the kind of secularism of our constitution practices. So I think it's more than just a political endgame of winning the next election um, because he's, he has been a RSS scattered uh, since his um, childhood. This is the sort of pseudo-paramilitary offshoot of the BJP. Absolutely. Rashtriya uh, hmm. Swam Sevak. So, um, so w this is what I fear, and uh, many others believe the same, is that this goes beyond winning elections. This goes into changing the psyche of this country.
Okay, well, finally on today's news panel, let's take a look at the United States, the president of which is taking time out from his busy schedule of golf, tanning beds and barking at the television like some big angry walrus to sue the New York Times. Trump is alleging libel in a 2019 opinion piece by Max Frankel, which alleged impropriety in the relationship between Trump's 2016 presidential campaign and Russia. While the Times is regrettably probably too prim a journal to headline tomorrow, front page with come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. Legal opinion thus far solicited by American media does not much fancy the president's chances. Um, Lance, the, the, the word ridiculous is one I have read repeatedly in interviews with American uh, lawyers who've been asked about Trump's chances of making this one stick. Um, why is he doing this? Uh, he's doing it simply in order to send a message to his supporters and those that he hopes will come over to his side that the media can't be trusted, that they shouldn't listen to what the New York Times or indeed any other part of what he regards as the the fake news media uh, says in the the months to come during what, of course, is presidential election year, and that they should just take what he says um, at uh, face value. And it's a piece of absolutely outrageous chutzpah on the on behalf of a guy who, if anyone were to try to challenge his right to freedom of speech, would be um, out of the... Uh, uh, he, he would be you know, slamming them down uh, in an instant to try to um, claim that there is a, 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 a justification for bringing this is, is just it's fraudulent. But does it... Somnath, what I don't... Many things I don't understand <laughs> about Donald Trump, but in this particular instance, does this even make sense from his point of view? Because I think it has become a truism that every time he kicks off at the Times or any other outlet on social media, they instantly put on another 20,000 subscribers. I kind of wish he'd have a pop at us from time to time, and Lord knows we have given him the material to work with. Um, Does this actually make sense if you're him? It does in the sense that he is the strong man taking on the media. He will be tweeting about it. He will be, uh, this will be on his official pages. So, And he runs a kind of, you know, media service by himself every morning as he... Quite often through the night. Quite often (laughs) through the night. Uh, So this is basically, as Lance put it very well, uh, one is posturing and getting ready for the next elections. But from your point of view, Lance, as somebody who specialised in political communications, has Trump actually upended what used to be a truism of politics? There's no mileage in whining about your media coverage. It is probably, I think, the only circumstances in which I would approvingly quote Enoch Powell, who I think once said something to the effect that a politician complaining about the newspapers is like a sailor complaining about the weather. It is what it is. Deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's torn up the rule book of political communications completely. He did it during his first uh, election campaign. He's done it right through his period of, of his presidency when people thought that he would have to then engage with the media in order to get his message across with the, with the mainstream media. Clearly, he doesn't have to do that. Um, and um, I think he's simply encouraged by the fact that it seems to have worked so far. So why not stick with it? Um, and if you carry on battering the media and, you know, most it's going on in this country. It's going on in in, in the United Kingdom when, uh, on a much more sort of gentlemanly level, the Boris Johnson government is trying to batter the BBC, trying to batter those parts of the media it doesn't like, uh, and to get them uh, in in into line. It's just that on this. Donald Trump, uh, as he does with everything else, he's just doing it on a much bigger, much bolder, much more arrogant 
scale. Um, and as long as it works for him, he'll carry on doing it. Because it does strike me, Somnath, that, that a lot of the media hasn't quite figured out how to adjust to this, that, that the media has perhaps been accustomed for many years from a, for a cert, to a certain amount of deference from somewhat cowed and frightened politicians. If the politicians are no longer cowed and frightened, what is the media's best response? Is it to adjust the way they cover these politicians or is it just to stand their ground and say, you want to do this, let's do it? I wish I had an answer to that. (laughs) (laughs) um, But um, the only option they have is to stand their ground and say that, look, this is how we have done it. This is tradition and you cannot buy, you know, you cannot... you might be able to bypass us. That's what Modi is doing. That's what Trump is doing. And perhaps what Boris might do later is <clears throat> go straight to the public because of all the productions, materials that you have at, at hand. Um, you asked if the media has found out a way. No, we don't know. We are constantly trying to figure out how to play this new political game, how to engage with the political bosses, because of it, if no one turns up at a BBC Newsnight program, the BBC presenter has to rethink how to <clears throat> engage with, with his, his or her audience. So we really do not know at this point of time. And it's a, it's, a, it's a game which Donald Trump seems to be winning handsomely at this point of time. And as you said, as long as he con- continues to win, he'll play it. Lance Price and Somnath Batabayal, thank you both for joining us. In a moment, we will hear how Los Angeles is cracking down on tourist sightseeing buses. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Finally today, bus tours in Los Angeles will soon be taking a different turn after a new law was passed to regulate congestion. Monocle's Ben Ryland explains. Los Angeles' Department of Transport is to start limiting which streets may be used by bus tour companies. Residents in and around Hollywood have for years been complaining of congested streets, blocked driveways and nosy tourists taking too many holiday snaps. There are even calls to move the famous Hollywood sign in an effort to discourage visitors from its namesake neighbourhood, Hollywoodland, the construction of which led to the creation of the original version of the sign. I spoke to the journalist Adrian Glick-Kudler as that campaign to move the sign was taking off in 2017, and I asked her about the Hollywoodland neighbourhood. Yeah, well, I think like the maps to the stars, as you think of, that's really not Hollywood at all. That's like further to the west, Bel Air and Brentwood. Hollywood land is somewhat similar in that it's a hilly neighborhood. It's just to the north of Hollywood proper. And it's got these like tiny winding streets. It almost feels like the streets are sort of intended to keep people out. It's important to remember that Hollywoodland isn't just another L.A. neighbourhood. The area was developed during the height of the silent film era, when the concept of cinema as the dominant and most lucrative art form was at its greatest. The people who starred in pictures were more famous than anyone else in the world. And without television or social media, they were much more recognisable than anyone will likely ever be again. The Hollywoodland sign, in its original form, was studded with around 4,000 light bulbs. At night, it would light up in three parts, Hollywood land. If you were looking for America's most promising industry town, there was no question you had arrived. 
the plot was developed all together in the early 1920s um, and the original owners were fairly well off. They were given a choice in in-house styles, French Normandy or Mock Tudor, Mediterranean, Spanish colonial, fairly large houses for the time. Now they're more modest for single family houses in LA, although they're, they're still pretty large and expensive. Those were sort of new styles in Los Angeles at the time, but now I think they've kind of come to represent the mishmash of architectural styles in Los Angeles. They really cover some of the major categories you see around LA now. The problems faced by the residents of Hollywoodland and other popular LA neighborhoods deserve serious attention from city authorities. We all rely on regulators to help maintain our quality of life. Any serious plan to relocate the famous sign would be a film historian's equivalent of, say, relocating the Colosseum. But it's an understandable reaction to a decades-old problem, one that should have been tackled sooner. The new traffic rules are a positive move, but encouraging tourists to respect the privacy of residents may also help. Hollywood may be a movie town, but that doesn't mean visitors should treat it like their own personal film set. Thanks, Ben. That is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Carlotta Ribello and researched by Yolin Goffan and Charlie German. Our studio managers were Louis Allen and Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000 London time, a brand new edition of The Urbanist. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London, 10am in Los Angeles. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. 